0: You're about to hear a classic Curbsiders episode on celiac disease with guest Dr. Amy Oxentenko. If you've heard it before, you got to listen again because there's so much packed into this one. And if you haven't heard it yet, then you are in for a real treat. But if you just must hear something brand new by the Curbsiders right now, then head over to patreon.com slash curbsiders, where we release two bonus episodes every month and we've already released 15 of them. So dig in. That's patreon.com slash curbsiders. Paul, I'm running right into it. No. This is the Curbsiders, and we are back.
1: I, I, I'm i completely thrown. I don't know how to go on from here.
0: <laughs> so I'm Dr. Matthew Watto, here with my good friend, Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Tonight, we will be talking about celiac disease with returning guest, friend of the show, a wonderful person and clinician, Dr. Amy Oxentenko. And we will introduce our co-host in a second, but I wanted to remind you that this and most of our episodes are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. And Paul, before you introduce our our friend and co-host for this one, can you please remind people what is it that we do on this show?
1: Yeah, no, thanks for the nudge. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. As you've alluded to a couple of times, I love how we always build the suspense for the one, the only Beth Garbs Garbitali who will also (laughs) be joining us tonight for this episode. Before we get into it, I should ask Garbs, how are you?
0: Doing well. (laughs) <laughs> fourth, <laughs> fourth year you. of medical school guards like when uh, when will you become uh when will you be graduating and uh will you be doing internal medicine the only correct answer is yes
2: of course i am doing internal medicine as i say to every person i feel like i was a person that most people knew i was doing internal medicine i didn't have to didn't have to spell it out for them but that's good i love internal medicine
0: well we're glad you're joining us tonight uh we had a, a wonderful show Did you want to give the audience any kind of teaser about what they're going to hear? And then would you mind reading the bio for our guest? Not at all. Well, this is a fantastic episode,
2: really high yield topic. Um, I think we've had previous um, episodes in the past where we've talked about it a little bit, but this is a great update. Um, We go through sort of the basic diagnosis, um, mimics. How we, do, how we think about the serologies, it's, it's all incredibly high yield. I can't even do justice in giving it a tease. But I will um, talk about our lovely and wonderful and incredibly knowledgeable guest, Dr. Amy Oxentenko. She's a professor of medicine and current chair of medicine at Mayo Clinic in Arizona. She completed her IM residency, chief residency, and GI fellowship at Mayo Clinic Rochester. And she served as the prior program director of the GI fellowship and then transitioned to IM residency program director, a role that she held for seven years before taking on chair of medicine in Mayo, Arizona in 2020. She served as a senior associate editor for the American Journal of Gastroenterology. She has been a member of the ACG Board of Trustees since 2017 and is now on the ACG executive team in line to be the fifth woman president of the ACG. She currently serves on the executive committee of the Internal Medicine ACGME Review Committee. She's been a recipient of Mayo's Distinguished Contributions to Medical Education Award, GME Program Director of the Year Award, and Distinguished Educator Award, as well as Minnesota's ACP Laureate Award. And... This is the super cool one. She was named the 2020 Women Disruptor of the Year by HelioGI. So, without further ado, our episode on celiac disease.
0: Let's get into it, Amy. We've been talking for a while now. The audience, I'm sorry, you'll never hear all that, but we have a we're going to have a great show for you here with Amy. But first, let's let's have Amy remind the audience who are you. Uh, give them a one liner.
3: All right. So my one-liner, I am a 49-year-old gastroenterologist who I still hope my internist would tell me I look younger than my stated age in the medical record, who (laughs) married my medical school sweetheart and have been married to him for 22 years. I have two teenagers at home and one adult child who I just sent off to college. And in my spare time, I love online shopping, running, reality TV, and hoarding books.
0: All right. So the next logical question is, if you wanted to give a pick of the week, because usually when people come for, you're a returning guest, so we're not going to ask you all the usual stuff, but we will ask you for a recommendation. So do you want to recommend a book or do you have something else that you'd like to recommend?
3: Well, I will say the two things on my bucket list to read, which I've not had time or to watch, I should say, would be the shows The Chair and Ted Lasso, which I've heard nothing but great things about. So those are on my bucket list. Um, But the book that I did read this last year in, you know, starting in a new chair role in the middle of a pandemic was Crucial Conversations, which by the way, I have three copies of because of my book hoarding. I forgot that I already (laughs) bought two copies of them on my bookshelf. And so when I started this role, I bought it yet again. And um, you can't read that enough times when you step into a new position.
1: So I thought of a getting to know you question I was very proud of. And then I realized that I'm talking to one of the most disciplined people in the world, but I'm going to throw it out there. <laughs> so you've been, before we started recording, you, you disclosed you've been spending a lot of time in airports and also in the sky. And I'm wondering, I know every time I travel, I treat my body like a, a third rate amusement park. It's like action park in New Jersey. Like it's, it's not great it's because I'm like, I'm eating the fast food in the airport. So where I'm going with this is, do you have a specific travel guilty pleasure? Um, that you enjoy. So for me, it's, I think the snack shops and like buying the $7 Reese's peanut butter cups. But is there anything that you enjoy, like trashy novels, bad food, um, anything that you treat yourself with while traveling?
3: Yeah, I think when I travel, that is my guilty pleasure of just watching a movie on, you know, on in flight, which I usually never take the time to do at home. So I'll usually have my computer out working on a talk or a paper and watching some movie that I know I would never be able to convince my family to watch, even if we did have the time together.
0: Well, if you ever get a chance for basketball, you know, that's, uh, I know (laughs) that's one of Paul's favorites. (laughs) Deep cuts. Deep cut. Yeah. Very deep cut. Okay. Well, Garbs, you're here again with us tonight, and you always give great picks of the week. So what what can you recommend to the audience?
2: Yeah, I feel like my picks of the week are always like a short paragraph in the show notes later where I'm like, and then there's this other thing you can try. And here's a recipe you can use, and here's a blogger. Um, but yes, my as as to no surprise to anyone here, my recommendation is food related and very on brand for that tonight's episode. There is a I have tried, as I like to be a home baker and try new recipes, I've tried to make my own blends of gluten-free flour because I have friends who are gluten-free and friends who have celiac, and I've tried very hard to kind of capture, you know, what gluten-free baking can be and I just want to leave it to the professionals. After I found the King Arthur um, gluten-free flour bl- blend that they have, it is fantastic. It's reliable. It feels like flour, it bakes like flour. I sound like I'm being paid by them. I am not. It's really an excellent <laughs> blend. Um, and the problem with making your own is you have to get like a bunch of small ingredients, mix them together. They're all sort of like niche things that you'll find at your co-op or something. So it's you know, being able to buy this box is just a lot easier and more accessible and Um, I'm going to put a link to a good pie crust recipe you can use for it because baking pie crust gluten-free is actually one of the easier kind of recipes you can transform to gluten-free since pie crust doesn't like gluten. You don't want too much gluten to develop. So it's perfect. Anyway, happy baking. I feel like we should
0: have saved your pick of the week for the treatment section here, (laughs) the the patient management section. I
3: mean, We'll change Uh, the link to that part of the show.
0: Yeah. So Paul, you know, Beth just gave a really useful pick of the week, so I'm almost nervous to ask you for one, but did you have did you have a pick?
1: Sure. You, you know me, I'll always have a pick. I'm I'm gonna actually recommend it's a qualified recommendation. It's the game What Remains of Edith Finch. It's a 2017 game. It is a stunning piece of storytelling. It's basically a first-person story where you're sort of learning about your own family and that there's this apparent curse where every generation, everyone dies. Except for one person who carries on the name and dies in a mysterious and sort of weird way, and as you're exploring your family house, you actually get a chance to sort of play through the vignettes where each of the characters die. So, and it sounds it sounds <laughs> grim. It is grim, um, and there, and you know, content warning. There, there are even some child deaths that you play through. It's almost like those Edward Gorey stories, kind of. But I, I will say it's done very respectfully. It actually turns out to be really moving and deep and thoughtful, and I think uses. Video games in a, a neat way that actually the mechanics of the game inform the narrative to some extent, even though I don't think you have a lot of authorship over it. So it's 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 something I wasn't able to stop thinking about for weeks after I after I played it. So it's again, it can be a little bit grim. So and there is some content that if you're sensitive to, probably stay clear. But if if that sounds like something that you might enjoy, I, I would highly recommend it. It's again, the name is What Remains of Edith Finch. And, it is,
0: and that's for any. Uh, is that a computer game or Xbox, PlayStation?
1: Available, I think, on most platforms. I think it's available for PC, but for sure on um, Windows, PlayStation, Xbox One. So the big ones, Nintendo Switch, even too. Uh,
0: I'm gonna I'm gonna quickly recommend a podcast that was recommended to me by Paul, and it is the Doughboys podcast, <laughs> which is. You know, not a gluten-friendly podcast, Uh, and uh, these these are two comedians that make fun of each other, uh, have other comedian on the podcast, one or two other comedians on, and they all just go to the same uh, chain restaurant, often a fast food chain, and then they just order a ridiculous amount of food off the menu and then just give it a fork score based on how much they liked it uh, out of five forks. And uh it's it is if you are looking to just waste some time <laughs> then it's it's delightful.
2: What kind of comedians are they? Are they like super famous ones or like up and coming comedians?
0: One of the guys was on, has been in some movies. I think he was in he had he's had some small parts in some movies and TV shows that I've seen. And the other guy I think has been in writers rooms and maybe worked on some video games things like that, but not not like household names. Well, wow, I think when it comes to fun factor
3: for pick of the week, I think I might have the lowest scoring fun factor, <laughs> you know, with <laughs> crucial conversations when I'm competing against a fun podcast and uh, pie making and some video game. but And
1: a game about death. Yeah. I, no, I, I think you could still be yeah. <laughs> second <laughs> place.
0: Look, we we need all types of picks on this show. Let's get into a case here from Cash because we have a great topic to talk about tonight. Actually. Uh, we've been talking about doing this, Amy, for I guess at least a year plus now, a year and a half, and I had run across some patients since we had last talked, and I'm hoping that now uh, that you can really shed some light on some some cases for us here. I hope so. So the first case is uh, Miss Freya Gluten. She is a 25-year-old female. She's a new patient to your clinic, and- she says that she's here today because she was really offended. She was having some unintentional weight loss and her former PCP suggested that maybe she had an eating disorder, but she's coming to you saying, no, I, you know, I don't have an eating disorder. I'm losing weight. I don't know why I'm having diarrhea. You know, I feel like my hair and my skin just don't look healthy. I'm, I feel like my hair is thinning out. And on your exam, she looks a little bit of pale. Her BMI is 18 she has a relatively benign abdominal exam. So maybe what is it about this case that might stick out to you? Does this ring of celiac to you? Or what What are you thinking when you see this person?
3: Yeah, I think her her last name gives it away a little bit. But no, I, think <laughs> yeah. in, I think in reality, um, oftentimes when a patient like this, let's say, might be referred to gastroenterology for further workup, you know, you look at the case now in this vignette, and you know, there's so many pieces that with that retrospectoscope seem obvious. But in reality, when they're coming into their primary care provider, they might just have a single issue or complaint that, in and of itself, may not, you know, raise the radar that, you know, this could be celiac disease. So, but again, when you put it together, someone who has unintentional weight loss, low BMI, diarrhea, you know thinning hair suggestive of a vitamin or mineral deficiency, pale, you know conjunctiva when you when you state it like that it seems so obvious but again none of those things are packaged typically in that way and so patients might have multiple episodes of care where those things become apparent in isolation and it's not until you put all of those things together that it becomes more obvious so I think that's why it's often overlooked because we just see see the monosymptomatic feature of celiac disease without thinking about that being one feature among many that it could present to a provider. So I think it seems, you know, a, a fairly classic case, you know, when you put it together in that, in that paragraph.
0: So if you were going to approach testing in this person um, or, and, and you know, what might you, what might you tell her? about the labs that you're going to send and what it might mean if if she has testing that pos- comes back positive for celiac.
3: Yeah. So I think if, you know, in seeing this patient, it's hard because she has such strong features. So you're probably going to go on to do more than just serologic testing. And we'll talk about when is biopsy indicated. So again, you definitely would start with celiac serology and we can talk about those in more detail probably because of the weight loss and thinning hair, you would probably check more than just celiac serology because it may or may not be celiac disease. I mean, with low weight, you'd also think of adrenal insufficiency. You'd probably want to think about some vitamin and minerals based on that hair loss. So I think, you know, you would do your general internist sort of workup for each of those features, but checking her and assessing her for celiac disease would definitely be within that workup. Um, And so typically in a case like that, when I'm starting with screening, even though you could say she's really almost, you know, you're doing diagnostic testing on her because she has such compelling features. But in any case, I would start with just typical celiac serology. And for her, I would check an IgA tissue transglutaminase antibody and also check a total immunoglobulin IgA level at the same time, just to make sure that you don't miss the, you know, two to 3% of the population that are IgA deficient who have celiac disease.
0: This episode is sponsored by Birch Mattresses. You know... I've talked about this openly, how I've struggled with sleep. And part of that, that's, uh, you know, that's a my own mental thing. And I'm, I've worked on that. I've gotten better at that. But another part of that is my old mattress was just saggy, uncomfortable, it was too firm. And now I got my Birch mattress and I love this thing. What I love about it is very breathable. It's much cooler at night when I'm sleeping, which is important for sleep. If you read about sleep, you want to be cool when you're sleeping. So I love this mattress. It's stylized. It's stylish. It's comfortable. It's even environmentally conscious. It's made right here in America, crafted with natural and organic materials like fair trade cotton, organic wool and natural latex. And Birch, you know what, they ship this thing right to your door in a box. You cut it open. It opens up super easy. It's a 100 night free sleep trial. So I know you're gonna love it. But if you don't, you can send it back. And guess what? Your Birch mattress has a 25-year warranty, and as I've joked, who knows if I'll even be alive in 25 years. This thing's going to outlast me for sure. Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com/curb. That's 20% off and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com/curb. Sleep better with Birch.
1: So Matt often does this because he gets excited about diagnosis because he's smart and already has it figured out. And also he wrote the case, but I'd like to actually take a step back. So you see this patient who maybe raises your antenna, like this could be celiac disease. I'd like to actually hear about some of the history that you would take before we actually start um, taking blood out of her. Like what other questions I think, do you, do you find important and, and Cause it, it seems like there are a billion features. Like a lot of these sort of GI uh, things all, also have all these extra intestinal manifestations. So what kind of history do you take in someone for whom you suspect celiac disease?
3: Absolutely. That's that's a great point, Paul. So I think I usually just go back and take, first of all, I start, because she has GI symptoms, I start with her GI history. You know, when did she notice she started developing GI symptoms? Sometimes they'll relate even in childhood or in school, having, you know, episodes where they need to go to the nurse, they're having diarrhea, upset stomach. Um, depending on the age of, of the patient, whether or not they have a parent in the room, I'll ask, uh, you know, in terms of, how, did they meet their growth milestones as a child? Were they low on the growth curve? Were they meeting the growth curve? And, you know, when you see that she has pale conjunctiva, you know, did this patient have any past laboratory testing? And so just to take a look back to see have they had features of anemia or things like that that people have not addressed. So I'll do a fairly thorough GI review of systems, you know, any bowel complaints, abdominal pain, nausea, weight loss. Um, I will ask about just like you said, I'll almost go head to toe in terms of, you know, do they have mouth ulcers? Do they have headaches? Do they have skin rash, like you mentioned? Do they have joint aches? Do they have features of neuropathy? You know, I'll just do the head to toe of all of those extra intestinal sort of features of celiac disease. And then in that history, I would also ask, you know, a, f- a fairly thorough family history to see not only is there a family history of celiac disease, but also just a family history of other autoimmune diseases, just because we know, Autoimmune diseases run in families. So if they have a strong family history of other, you know, lupus or rheumatoid arthritis or autoimmune thyroid disease, again, that increases my suspicion that this patient might also have a concurrent autoimmune disease as well. So that's usually how I do it. It, You really do need to take that thorough review of systems just because it it can manifest in so many different ways. At age 25, I don't, it doesn't say whether she's married or not. I would also ask about, you know, menstrual history, infertility. Those would be other important things to ask about because those could be some of those non-classic features of disease as well.
2: Yeah, I was going to ask about that. Um, it, you know, is it worth it to take a good period history and sort of ask about amenorrhea? Would be, are those the sort of classic presentations or where you see sort of a mixed picture where people may have heavy bleeding or, you know, how does that present in that history?
3: Yeah, it's interesting. We usually don't see necessarily um, menstrual irregularity. And the infertility, There's thought, it's thought to be multifactorial. It's thought to either be from some alteration of the pituitary access just because of, you know, nutritional issues. It could also be related to vitamin and mineral deficiencies. Um, you know, it's probably related to more than one thing. So I focus more on the fertility history more so than the menstrual history. Although, The menstrual history becomes important if they're iron deficient. But I will say that the one population that I think celiac disease is often most overlooked is in young women who have erratic menstrual history, who have iron deficiency anemia, because everybody blames it on the menstrual history without Mm. thinking that, oh, this could be celiac disease. So that's the one patient population i think it's important to take a menstrual history but even if they said oh i have heavy menses i still would not chalk up the iron deficiency to be from that unless i have ruled them out for celiac disease at least with celiac serology as well
2: and i was also wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the spectrum of abdominal complaints some of the papers i was looking at were sort of saying altered bowel habits i mean constipation isn't typically going to be that classic presentation but it can you know present that way in children you know it, can you elaborate a little bit on some of those, like other ways it presents, or how people describe it that maybe doesn't fit the classic diarrhea, weight loss picture?
3: Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, we think about diarrhea because classically we think diarrhea, malabsorption, weight loss, failure to thrive, growth issues. But when we think about non-classic, you think about all of these. Other, you know, whether it's bowel habits or atypical things, that, and we used to call them atypical features, but we know they're not atypical anymore. They're almost more common in some ways. 20% of patients with celiac disease present with constipation as their predominant bowel habit. So, again, just because someone says they're constipated at baseline and that's their baseline bowel function, you, you can't stop the workup there because they very well still could have celiac disease You know, we talked about the iron deficiency. The other thing I will look at in terms of some of that other history like Paul had alluded to is, you know, do they have premature metabolic bone disease? Have they had bone fractures or unexplained before menopausal age that were not trauma induced? You know, do they have abnormal liver biochemistries that are otherwise unexplained? I think those are sort of the sort of things that you have to go through that multi-system history we also see a, a fairly significant proportion of patients with celiac disease have obesity. So again, that's very, it's, it's not in our typical sort of picture of someone with celiac disease that, you know, may be obese, but we definitely see that with increasing frequency. So I think you have to just realize that you really need to have a low threshold to test patients for this if they have any feature of de- of the disease. and we have serologic testing that's that's quite good and high sensitivity and fairly specific. and so um, I think I would just have a low threshold given this is fairly common in the population.
0: So to recap for for Miss Freya gluten here she's twenty five, she's got this unintentional weight loss, she has diarrhea based on her exam, we think she's iron deficient. So we're going to send some basic labs. So we send a CBC, a CMP, we checked her thyroid, we thought maybe hyperthyroidism. And it, she comes back, She's she's got iron deficiency, anemia, plus she has a positive TTG immunoglobulin A or TTG IgA. And what do we do now? How? What do you tell her about this diagnosis of celiac? Like what's your spiel to her?
3: Yeah, so I think, you know, when someone has a positive serology in the setting of clinical context and particularly if the celiac serology is fairly high, you can feel fairly comfortable about the diagnosis. We will go on to talk about what you should do for more definitive confirmatory testing in an adult. But at that point I tell that patient based on the, you know, likelihood of their TTG elevation that they most likely they, they have probable celiac disease at that point and we can go on to do the additional testing to make sure it's definitive. But, you know, they'll ask you, well, what is celiac disease? They hear about gluten-free, they might have heard about celiac disease. So, you know, I, I give them a comparison of something like, let's say, a food allergy. Most people can understand what, let's say, a peanut allergy is and how it causes an immediate allergic reaction. I tell them it 's not a food allergy i mean there's definitely patients who have wheat allergy, and that presents again almost like a nut allergy that immediate kind of you know um, reaction to food, but an autoimmune condition to food, which is what celiac disease is you don't i mean you can have some of these immediate symptoms, but it 's not like an i g e mediated with you know flushing and abnormal f- sensation in your tongue. It really is one of these things that they develop symptoms usually after that food has been in their system. Some patients do, do not develop any symptoms, but that autoimmune sort of reaction to food that has developed in those patients who are genetically susceptible causes this, you know, chronic inflammatory condition in their small bowel which then can predispose them to many of the manifestations of celiac disease that we've already talked about including symptoms including laboratory abnormalities. And so it's not that immediate sort of, you know, food allergy type of thing because it's not a food allergy, it's an autoimmune condition which causes more of those long-standing chronic reactionary issues in the gut to which patients will have variable symptoms. Some may not have any symptoms, some have fairly dramatic symptoms when they ingest gluten. So I tell this patient, you know, it is a condition in, it's an autoimmune condition in someone who's genetically susceptible who eats gluten. And then there's some other factor, environmental, that is probably varied for all of the patients who have celiac disease that we can't necessarily measure, whether it's, you know, the age that they had weed introduced in their diet, it's been linked to, you know, the mode of delivery and childbirth, all of these sorts of things that are variable, leaky gut, you know, maybe they had gut infections that made their gut more leaky to gluten or gluten and peptides, That's the the variableness that we can't always control for or figure out in any one patient what was their genetic tendency or their environmental tendency. But we know they have a genetic tendency and we know they obviously have ingested gluten to, you know, in some other environmentally triggered reaction.
0: Our episode today is sponsored by Panacea Financial, a nationwide digital bank built for doctors by doctors. Whether you're a fourth-year medical student, a resident, or an attending physician, Panacea Financial is a bank designed specifically for you. Panacea offers free checking with no ATM fees nationwide, 24-7 customer service, and loan options custom-made for physicians or trainees at every career stage. Instead of running up credit card debt, try their PRN personal loan that is designed to give you a better way to cover expenses such as relocation, board exams, home renovations, or even consolidating high interest debt. Panacea's PRN personal loan is funded in as little as 24 hours with interest rates starting at half a typical credit card. They understand that money can be tight, which is why they offer a period of no or reduced payments on their PRN personal loan. They also support physicians in other ways, including helping you start, expand, or even buy into a practice or surgery center. If you're ready to join the thousands of doctors who have declared independence from traditional banks, visit PanaceaFinancial.com today to open your free account. Panacea Financial is a division of Premise, member FDIC.
1: The risk factors are fascinating. I think there was one paper I was reading that actually talked about seasonality of when you were delivered like you can even sort of like when just what time of year you were born in actually you can contribute like can celiac horoscope yeah it's just it's just i'm not sure like what do you do with that information um Anyway, not, not, not worth interrupting. Yeah,
3: I think you don't do anything with that information. I think the only thing you do with some of those environmental pieces of information is if you have someone with celiac disease who then has, you know, children um, and delivers children, does that affect maybe when you would introduce gluten into the diet of, of their children, if you're going to introduce gluten in the diet at all? Um, but. Correct. Most of those things, it's hard to know what to do with. We're not going to have women deliver their children differently just because one route may have a higher likelihood of, you know, celiac disease versus another Um so those are, those are the challenging things because patients want to know what they can do to avoid getting celiac disease. And short of just avoiding gluten, there really isn't, you know, an ability to control those environmental factors. I was just
2: going to ask, like, how do you tell patients how we manage celiac? How do you talk them through that? And what, is, what are sort of the mainstays? I wish you could tell us that you're, you know, you, you have this exciting research about a lactate for gluten where people could just <laughs> take a pill before they have gluten. But I know, you know, it doesn't seem it's that easy for this. So How do you explain that to patients?
3: Yeah, it's not that easy. And I I'm just I normalize that it's not easy. I think that's the most important thing, you know. It's easy for us to hand out a pill for high blood pressure, or hyperlipidemia. Patients would love to have a pill for celiac disease. And so I normalize that it is not going to be easy and that it's a learning curve and that You know, I think as you start to talk about what the management is, that it's no different than a type 1 diabetic that's being told they have diabetes. It's just you have to really – it changes everything they think about, about the food entering their body, reading labels, and understanding those effects. So, I I grant them grace in terms of it's going to take some time to learn that, and we just need to get them the right education, you know, in that regard. Oh,
0: yeah. Hopefully – I I think that's one of the challenges is, is finding a dietician that depending, like if you're just practicing in the community, probably need to find somebody that has done this before that can really help coach the patient through it because it it seems like it'd be a, like you said, it's a, it's a life-changing diagnosis in the sense that they really have to think about things differently now.
3: Right. I wonder if it's worth us taking a step back, because I know Paul will bring us back if we don't, (laughs) so I'll I'll do it for him, that, you know, we talked about the symptoms, both classic and and non-classic, and we mentioned, at least for this patient, what we would check for serology. But I think it's helpful to mention a few other things in terms of serology, because, you know, as you go into your ordering system, you'll see that you have other options. You know, in the past, you know, 10 or more years ago, there used to be the and antibody and gladen antibody in and of itself should no longer be used in clinical practice. But that should not be confused with the current day, you know, gladin pep- uh, deaminated gladin peptide. So that's the new kid on the block in terms of the celiac serology, and that comes in both an IgA and IgG titer. And then there's the fairly traditional one that people have heard of, the endomysial antibody. So those, you know, the TTG, the endomysial antibody, the deaminated gladin peptide, those are the three serology that are in clinical use. One thing that I see commonly done is kind of this catch-all where someone will order all of the serology just to see like what sticks, right? Is there anything that's going to become elevated or that they find positive? And while that seems like a great idea, right, because it will increase the sensitivity and you're more likely to find a positive test, but it's at the loss of specificity. So you're going to have more false positives. So the guidelines specifically say that the IgA-TTG is the serologic study of choice to screen for celiac disease, and they strongly advise against this panel testing, meaning checking more than one of them unless you have significant reason to do it. And I would say the only reason I would check a second serologic study is if you have one that's a bit equivocal or something just doesn't perfectly fit where the histology doesn't really make sense in line with the serology or the histology is classic, but the serology is negative, the TTG, then I might go on to check another one because it would be nice to have some serologic study to monitor disease um, from that standpoint. So I would just say to the audience, stop panel testing if that's been in your practice and only check a second serology in, in an as-needed situation. Paul, oh, we now
0: have proof that you've heard this, so you got to stop this bad behavior. I know Paul. <laughs> Paul's I, a big panel guy. I, I love I think, my
1: fatigue panel. It has the Lyme and it, serologies. It also has Lyme in there too, right? Perfect. Yep. It's got it got it all.
0: Lyme, oh. all the celiac. Amy, I wanted to ask if, if Freya's TTG came back negative and she, but she, you know, she wasn't IgA deficient, but her TTG came back negative, but we're still suspicious for celiac or or not. If it came back negative, let's say it was intermediate. Like it was like at the upper limit of normal. Um, is she, what, which one do you prefer the DGP, the deaminated gliadin peptide or the endomycel antibody? I think more
3: often in current day, people find it easier to order the deaminated gliadin peptides, so that's usually the one that I would order next, um, and so that's what I would most commonly do. Although it would not be wrong to check an endomysial antibody either okay. one. In that case, I think a, a, an important question that you're, I think you're getting at as well, is whether it was, you know, negative, equivocal, or positive, I think in her case, given she has such compelling features, she needs a biopsy is the bottom line. You know, so who do you go on to check a small ball biopsy on? It should be anyone who has a positive serology or anyone who who has compelling clinical features, even if the serology is negative. Just because you would you would ask yourself, well, this person has features, let's say, of malabsorption that we otherwise can't explain. And, you know, while the serology are quite good, you know, they have a sensitivity of roughly 95%, that means that there are going to be roughly 5 or so percent of patients with a negative TTG. So, it, you know, maybe they'll have a positive deaminated gluten peptide, but either way, you should go on to biopsy those individuals who have high clinical suspicion. And for the serological testing and the biopsy, folks have to be consuming gluten, right? Absolutely. That's a great point. You know, when you think about the diagnosis of celiac disease, you want to have some features that make you think of it. They should have a positive serology. They should have a compatible biopsy. But those things should all, you know, the the testing should be done on a gluten-free diet. As soon as someone goes gluten-free, the sensitivity of the serology can fall in the matter of weeks. And in, in fact, in months, it can already normalize. The biopsies will take longer to normalize, so there's probably not a risk if someone goes gluten-free and you don't biopsy them for two to four weeks, you're still going to likely find a very positive biopsy in a patient with celiac disease, but that's an important thing is before you're going to undergo testing, always make sure that the patient is consuming gluten first just because that's going to affect the yield of your tests.
2: And if the patient was saying that, you know, maybe she's been looking on the internet and she's been trying out some diets, maybe she has been gluten-free, is there a time frame that you would want her to restart gluten? Like, is there any way to like give them a gluten load before we would do any of this testing? Like, how does that work?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. If if they're open to it, I would say absolutely yes. And in all reality, you're probably going to have to wait a few weeks at least to probably get an endoscopy scheduled uh, in that regard. But I would say the minimum time, the guidelines would say the minimum time you'd want to challenge them with gluten is two weeks. I like to tell my patients that ideally I would like them on it for eight weeks, especially if they've been purely gluten-free. Um, so I give them eight weeks to go back to their regular diet and then schedule the serologic studies and the EGD with biopsy if I know I'm going to go on to do that at that time. And they don't have to hoard gluten. You know, I think people, especially if they feel like eating gluten upsets their stomach, it's not like they have to eat, you know, half a loaf of bread during that gluten challenge every day. It's really the equivalent of oftentimes just one piece of bread, depending on the type of bread they're having, you know, each day in order to get enough gluten to, to trigger that, you know, autoimmune response in someone who does have celiac disease. And that can make it more likely that they're willing to do that when they know they don't have to just eat nothing but
0: gluten all day
3: prior to that testing for eight weeks.
2: That's true. Although for me, that would be a selling point, but that's fair. That <laughs> I can see you know, if I was having sensitivity.
0: <laughs> so to, to wrap up this case, I think we need to tell Freya Gluten, what other testing does she need? Because we've just made the diagnosis. She had a positive TTG. We biopsied her. Biopsies were consistent as well. So what else does she have to do um, now that she's had this diagnosis? Like what how often are we getting labs and and what else are we what else do we need to check if it hasn't been done? Perfect.
3: Well, I think once you make the diagnosis, the first thing like we already talked about is send this individual to a dietitian to get instructed on a gluten-free diet. I think oftentimes patients go to the internet and you can imagine all the variableness of information that's out there. So I always have them see a skilled dietitian who's well versed in a gluten-free diet. At that first visit for adult patients, we usually recommend checking a bone densitometry. And so I will usually recommend that at that first visit when the diagnosis has been made. I will look back. And in this case, you know, maybe we ordered vitamin and minerals at the beginning. But if not, again, once we've confirmed that diagnosis, I will check, you know, if you select a vitamin and minerals, you already mentioned, you know, checking ferritin, I would check vitamin D. Typically, I'll check vitamin B12. If they haven't had their thyroid checked, I would check that. And I will typically check, you know, liver biochemistries just because patients can have either, you know, concurrent asymptomatic autoimmune hepatitis, or they may just have liver test abnormalities from the celiac disease. So those would be the things I would typically check. It's interesting, oftentimes, I'll put folate on the list and you'll see that, but there's not great evidence about checking folate in patients with celiac disease, which is really interesting because you think about where folate is absorbed, is in the duodenum, just like iron. So you think that would be, you know, would be typically low, but I don't think there's great evidence for checking a folate, although typically you'll see people doing that. And then the other vitamin minerals, it's just really on an as-needed basis. Like if they have significant malabsorption... I will check things like copper and zinc and vitamin A and those sorts of things if they have features that might be compatible with those selective deficiencies. So we talked about, you know, dietitian, bone density, vitamin and minerals, and some of those other labs. And the other thing I will do at that first visit when I've made the diagnosis is talk to them about family screening of first-degree relatives, which means, you know, their parents, their siblings, and if they're adults and they have, you know children, um, I would recommend that all of their first-degree relatives undergo serologic testing. So that's the first visit. And then usually what I recommend is them, you know, touching base in four to six months. At that point, you have an interim check-in with them, see how they're doing in terms of clinical, you know, improvement on the gluten-free diet. That is the point that I would recheck their celiac serology, the IGATG at that four to six-month period. You should see it significantly reduced, if not normal, by then. Um, I would also at that point recheck any vitamin and minerals that were low at the beginning just to make sure that your replacement has been adequate. And if they're adequate at that point, you you may not need to recheck them again. So that would be at the four to six-month visit. And then typically, I would check a serology six months later. So that would be at the one-year mark from when you diagnose them. Again, it should be normal for sure by that point if they have successfully eliminated gluten from their diet. And then I typically check the serology on an annual basis in celiac patients
0: You know, it can be difficult when you're at work, you're trying to get things done, sending emails, maybe you're creating a new post to go on a website, writing something for social media, but Grammarly is there to support you from start to finish. For over 10 years, Grammarly has been powered by AI technology that you can trust to help you across all the places where you write most. And now it can help you do even more because with one click, you can easily... Brainstorm, rewrite, and reply with suggestions based on your context and your goals so you can improve productivity for you and your teams. I know at the Curbsiders, every time I'm working on show notes, I always bring up Grammarly and ask Grammarly for suggestions. How can I make my writing better? How can I make things more accurate? So let's say you need to polish your writing. Well, Grammarly can help paraphrase and rewrite things to be more concise instantly. All you have to do is select the text that you want to rewrite and give Grammarly a prompt. Maybe you'll say, improve it or shorten it. And Grammarly will do that for you immediately you'll be amazed at what you can do with Grammarly. Go to grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free today. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y.com slash podcast. Grammarly.com slash podcast.
3: Now, once someone has had celiac disease, let's say for six, eight, 10, 12 years, and they feel like I've got this diet down, Sometimes I will allow their serologic titers to be checked, you know, every other year. If they feel like nothing has changed in their diet, their symptoms are well controlled. Um, You typically don't need to recheck their bone density unless they later go on to have some other risk factor, right, for metabolic bone disease. They become menopausal or have a steroid exposure for some other reason um, recurrently. If it was abnormal, though, at baseline, then you should probably recheck it in two years after they've been on a gluten-free diet to make sure they've had stabilization of their bone density, and then the question is, do you need to go on to biopsy these patients again? And again, the guidelines suggest that you should rebiopsy patients. And typically in the past, we used to do it in one year after the diagnosis was made. We've now pushed that back to recommend rebiopsy them in two years rather than one. And the reason that change has been made is because, you know, we know that patients, if they're older at diagnosis, oftentimes it takes their small bowel longer to heal. So we typically do a two year time period for most individuals. And the risk is if you biopsy them too early and they're not fully healed, then you start pointing the finger at them, like, "Hey, you're you're not eliminating gluten," where they really could be following the diet very astutely, and it's just that they're taking longer to heal. So that's typically the follow up that I would recommend, you know, at the time the diagnosis is made, and then the six month follow up, one year follow up, two year follow up, and then, like I said, just checking in with them regularly if they develop new symptoms or features that would suggest either, you know, something changed in their history or maybe gluten is now getting back in their died, which I suspect we'll talk about later. Yeah.
2: Is there any age
3: threshold for the
2: DEXA? I know that, um, you know, I mean, for this patient, a 25-year-old, would you go ahead and do that just as a baseline or is it something that you think about more when somebody's maybe had it for an undiagnosed period or they've been undiagnosed for a period of time?
3: Yeah, that's a, a a great question. I sometimes will individualize this. Again, the guidelines would say adult patients, but you're right. It really depends on, you know, I think if I had a, let's say a 25-year-old man who was diagnosed with celiac disease and they their only feature is, you know, that they were diagnosed because of family screening and they have no symptoms at all, um, boy, it's it's, you know, less likely that they're going to probably have osteoporosis or osteopenia Um, But I've also been burned, and I've checked a a Dexa and people, and surprisingly, it has been low. So I think there's some wiggle room in that. Again, I kind of base it on you know their symptoms, how how abnormal their biopsy has been, and. Oftentimes, it's hard to base it on symptoms because sometimes patients don't realize they've been symptomatic for so long until they've gone gluten-free and have said, wow, I didn't realize that these stomach aches that I've had since I was a child, you know, were the similar stomach aches that have now gone away when I've gone gluten-free. So, I think it's it's hard to base it on time from symptoms um, to how long they've had the disorder.
1: Can I ask, I know Matt is itching to move on just because he has some great patient names um, for later cases, so if we get to them all. You read not and you're done. <laughs> I, I did want to ask um, about the TSH specifically. Is that because there's such a high prevalence of, of comorbid autoimmune thyroid disease? Is that the idea behind that? And then if so, is there any guidance for intervals for testing that Do you check one time and then are done? Or do you sort of check in every year when you're doing your yearly serologies? Or what's, the, what's a reasonable time to kind of check in on the thyroid and make sure it's behaving itself?
3: I would say for celiac disease, I just check it on baseline just because like, we, you know, you mentioned is just a higher rate of autoimmune disease. And obviously it can affect, you know, their thyroid replacement can be affected by if their bowel is absorbing or not. So I think that's, you know, several reasons to check it. I think if it's normal to check it later on, is just purely based on, you know, I, I guess I would turn that back to you all as, as internists, you know, how often do you check a thyroid in someone? Um, If they're not having symptoms, you may not need to to check it. But if they have any features of disease, you know, patients with celiac disease do have an increased likelihood of type 1 diabetes and thyroid disorders. So I think there are, you could reverse that and say in type 1 diabetics, do you check them for celiac disease every three to five years based on that association? And there are some suggestions that in patients with autoimmune disease to consider those other variables and, and consider checking them with increased frequency compared to the general population.
1: And I know that there are some associated malignancies that that patients with celiac disease are at higher risk for. Is it sort of the same principle there where you just kind of have a higher, or I guess a lower threshold for suspicion of those things? Like how, is there anything to do differently with the, for care or for screening in terms of, um, in terms of cancer?
3: No, there's nothing different you do. You know, the one that, that patients will read about and then they most fear is a T-cell lymphoma of the small bowel. And the reason, and you know, that's fairly specific to celiac disease. It's an enteropathy associated T-cell lymphoma you know, one of the reasons that they get that is when you look at the histology in patients with celiac disease, there's a, a pretty dense lymphocyte and chronic inflammatory infiltrate. And so those lymphocytes ultimately then become, you know, just monoclonal and take over and, and form a lymphoma. So there's pretty good evidence to say that if patients can control their celiac disease and heal, heal their small bowel, their risk of developing those malignancies can can decrease. And so I will use that as a way to try to convince patients to be gluten-free, especially if they have few symptoms or that they're not eager to be on a gluten-free diet, that that's a malignancy that they can have some ability to prevent if they can heal their small bowel. Now, there's some patients who present with that lymphoma at the time they present with celiac disease. You know, you may have a six-year-old patient who presents with diarrhea, malabsorption, weight loss, and they're diagnosed with celiac disease and a T cell lymphoma at the same time. But I would say for most patients who come in, they have this fear once they've read about celiac disease, and I, I, I empower them to say, you can have some control over that. It's such a rare cancer. So that's the one, first thing I tell them. It's extremely rare. And if you you know, abide by your gluten-free diet and you you know, heal your small bowel, your risk of that malignancy is really very little difference compared to the general population without celiac disease. So I think that empowers patients to, to follow the diet as well. And what is the response rate to
2: the diet? I mean, will most, will like a a large, large majority of folks go into remission and heal their
3: bowel with it? Or are there people who are refractory to it? Yeah, the far majority will heal their bowel. Um, You'll have, you know, there's a difference between patients who have, I mean, refractory celiac disease is a true, you know, abnormality where they don't heal their bowel. That's different than non-responsive, which are patients Mm -hmm. who just, you know, don't respond to the diet, meaning they still have symptoms, but that may not be refractory celiac disease. There's a whole host of things that can cause patients to not respond to the diet and, and just concurrent GI conditions that can mimic celiac disease that they're at increased risk of.
0: Paul, do you want to read case two?
1: Oh, yeah, nothing nothing more. Um, so let's let's talk about Simon Wonderbread. Um, totally <laughs> common name. He is a 60-year-old male. He enjoys beer and bowling. He's presenting for his annual visit. His previous PCP ordered a CBC and a CMP. The CBC showed a hemoglobin of 10, an MCV of 75, and an RDW of 15. The CMP showed a normal creatinine and a hepatocellular injury pattern with an AST and ALT four times the upper limit of normal. He had a normal colonoscopy last year. This patient takes lisinopril hydrochlorothiazide for his high blood pressure. He was not on atorvastatin for hyperlipidemia, but he stopped this several months prior to these labs. He denies any rashes. He's not had any diarrhea. There's been no nausea, no vomiting, no abdominal pain. He's not had any weight loss. He's had a couple of rounds of labs. We tried to figure out some of these lab abnormalities, and they showed a low ferritin, a low transfer and saturation. And... The PCP went buck wild, ordered the, the TTG IGA, and it actually was mildly positive uh, with normal total IGA levels, so no IGA deficiency. Uh, eventually, the AST and the ALT just kind of level out at about two times the upper limit of normal without any evidence of steatosis on the right upper quadrant ultrasound that was ordered. And we may have mentioned that he likes beer and bowling, and so he's really not excited about the idea of starting a gluten-free diet due to the cost and the complexity and, and, and the legitimate interference with his current lifestyle. So this is feels a little bit less of the of a slam dunk type of patient, but let's just start out with the the obvious question. Could this be celiac and how aggressive should it be in, in working that particular diagnosis up?
3: I, I definitely think it could be celiac disease. You know, I think the thing that gives people pause, likely, is his age of sixty years, but we know that probably twenty percent or so of patients are sixty of age and older. So that you know at the time of diagnosis so that wouldn't be out of the the realm of possibility he has an iron deficiency that we have not explained so i kudos to his internist actually for checking the iga tissue transglutaminase antibody so i think that still needs an explanation and his his ast and alt i mean while there could be you know other reasons he could have that. I mean, he's on a statin, but it sounds like those were, you know, adjusted. Um, He doesn't have steatosis. So there's still a question mark that could be from a variety of things. But again, that could be very compatible with celiac disease. So I think it is possible. I think, you know, the, the serologic tighter elevation, you know, gives you pause as well because it's not significantly elevated. If it was 10 times the upper limit of normal, you'd, you'd have, you feel like you'd have, you know, good evidence t- to feel like, okay, th- I have strong suspicion. I'm going to go on to complete the workup and do biopsies. I still think this gentleman needs an EGD A because you need to look to see why he has iron deficiency. You've looked in the lower GI tract, probably should look in the stomach. And while they're, you're there, you're going to take small bowel biopsies to see if there are features of an enteropathy compatible with celiac disease that would go along his, with his, you know, borderline celiac serologies. Now, you know, let's say you get the biopsies back and they're kind of equivocal. And there's a whole spectrum of histologic findings you can see in patients with celiac disease. Anything from just intraepithelial lymphocytes, we find that on about 10% of biopsies of the small bowel without any villus atrophy. And there's lots of things that could cause that finding, H. pylori, NSAIDs, gastroenteritis, or you could have the spectrum where they have total villus atrophy in the classic histologic finding. So, let's say this is someone who has, you know, his minimally elevated IgA tissue transglutaminase, and just very minimal histologic features with just some intraepithelial lymphocytes, then that makes it even more confusing. Is this celiac disease or not? That is probably the one patient that, you know, I, I rarely will check HLA testing, but that's the one patient maybe I would go on to check it in this case because if he shows that he has permissive genes, meaning the presence of HLA-DQ2 or DQ8, it just gives further support that this could be celiac disease. However, if he has the absence of both of those permissive genes, then I could take a pause back to say, okay, this histology is mild and nonspecific, his serology is low and not very high are those two abnormal for some other reason in someone who does not have a celiac permissive gene he would probably be delighted right yeah. if that were the case um, but i think i think you would go on to that point if you felt like the histology did not help confirm the diagnosis and you needed further supportive evidence
0: and the genetic testing from what i was reading your stuff it's it can help rule out it has a good negative predictive value but the normal population can have that those genes present and Absolutely. It's not particularly sensitive. Is that right?
3: Yeah. 30 to 40% of us carry one of those permissive genes. So if it's positive, you know, or you carry one of these genes, it doesn't really help in the workup other than it keeps it in the differential, right? It keeps it as a possibility. Mm -hmm. Whereas, like you mentioned, it has nearly a 100% negative predictive value. So if they don't carry one of those genes, you can feel quite comfortable that the patient does not have celiac disease. And does insurance usually
2: cover the HLA um, testing? Is that something that you would advise the patient to look into before you'd
3: order it, especially if they're concerned about cost? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I, I'll say that I've I've never had that discussion with a patient that checked with their insurance first, to be honest. And I've never had a patient come back to tell me that their insurance did or did not cover it. I would sure hope insurance would cover it because when you think about it this way, Let's say you check that test and someone does not carry either celiac gene, you have... At least avoided for that insurance company the need to undergo future you know serologic tests or future additional small ball biopsies, which are far more costly in that regard, so it helps really rule out the condition to stop the any future unnecessary testing for celiac disease if you can stop that diagnostic workup for celiac disease at that point by getting negative HLA so that would be my argument in terms of you know insurance supporting coverage of it if I ever had to do that pre-authorization with any insurance provider.
0: <laughs> this So this guy, let's say he had the biopsy. We, we actually ended up the biopsies. He just had some intra-epithelial lymphocytes, but nothing that was really confirmatory. So we got the HLA testing. It was negative. So that was reassuring. So it's a happy ending. He gets to continue with his beer and his bowling and I think
3: one thing I'd I'd want to bring up though cuz I I want to make sure that we talk we talked about the differential of what could cause a different histology and for him he had that slightly positive you know serology which you know but let's take the opposite approach let's let's say he had a negative serology but you went on to biopsy him and he had an enteropathy so Okay. You know, this is a good board pearl. Maybe more pertinent for GI boards, but as internists, um, you prescribe this medication is, olmesartan, which is an angiotensin receptor mm. blocker, has a black box warning that it can cause a celiac like enteropathy on small bowel biopsy. So, you know, typically it will be someone of this age, right, who's on an olmesartan who comes in with features of celiac disease or iron deficiency. You get by, bi- they have negative serology. You get their biopsies, and it looks like. Signi- you know, complete villus atrophy, all the histologic findings of celiac disease. So, you know, patients can have celiac disease and have what we would call serologically negative enteropathy. But when you see someone who's serologically negative, before you label them with celiac disease, whether or not their HLA is, you know, let's say they have a permissive gene, it really behooves you to go back to make sure that there aren't other things that are causing that enteropathy. So I always look at medications, make sure they're not on Olmisartan. And they could have been on that drug for anywhere from months to 13 years before they develop that enteropathy. So that's a really important one. I see that not uncommonly. There's other medications that can do it, checkpoint inhibitors, mycophenolate, mofetil, methotrexate, and then you think about other things that could cause a serologically negative anaeropathy, combined variable immunodeficiency, autoimmune neuropathy, the ever so, you know, common on boards, but rarely seen clinically tropical screw and Whipple's disease. <laughs> so I think you have to run through some of those sorts of things, but I think almost Sartin causing an is a really important pearl for the general internist.
0: Can I, I just want to ask Paul a question real quick. Paul, episode number 95, uh, Dr. Sheila Crow. Mm-hmm. Uh, told us about this enteropathy, and I believe we have a running contest to see who can first diagnose somebody with this Olmesartan en- enteropathy. I haven't diagnosed anybody.
1: I at this point, just because of regional prescribing variations, I think I would let the winner just find someone who's been prescribed Olmesartan. To be honest, like I don't <laughs> think I've actually ever seen that prescribed. But I, if I ever do, like I will be asking them a million GI questions, just because I that's like the only thing I know about it.
2: But the checkpoint inhibitors and the mycophenolate, those, I feel like those are becoming more common as they're developing different types for different sure. types of cancer. So I think those are good good high yield ones. Yeah. And well, or is- for your
1: transplant patients, the cell sept I feel like I see just over and over again. So that's, that's a great one.
3: Although, I, I think if you look at a study that was done on serologically negative enteropathy, and there's a category that was medication induced, Ulmus made up the biggest category of that drug induced enteropathy. So uh, maybe you're not seeing it because we're, <laughs> yeah, the people we are. Stop prescribing it. <laughs> <we're> pro- prescribing <laughs> it. But I think the other important thing is if you have someone with known celiac disease, for sure, don't put them on Omicartan just because, again, that can later then, if it gives them an enteropathy, is it the celiac disease, it's, is it the Omicartan? In fact, I usually tell them, I just have them avoid ARBs because there are some of the other ARBs, very low case report numbers that have caused an enteropathy, but Omicartan for whatever reason is one that has you know that link to it, which is, is it's kind of interesting. It probably has some strange molecular mimicry that triggers that sort of drug reaction in those patients.
0: Well, audience, the challenge is thrown to you. So please uh, tweet at us, tweet at Paul, at Paul and Williams, uh, (laughs) if you find one.
1: Yeah, make sure that yeah that you tweet out this very specific diagnosis, maybe age and where you work, all those things are. <laughs>
0: yeah, okay, oh, yeah, maybe ideas.
1: don't do that, but just tell Paul you found one. <laughs> yeah, perfect. And can maybe we go back to
3: Beth? Asked a really smart question with the first case that I think would follow follow in line here, and I should have maybe elaborated out further there. What do you do when that patient doesn't respond to the diet again? You talked about refractory group, but what is much more common is non responsive celiac disease. So you go through all of those steps, you make the diagnosis you know, you put them on a diet, they don't improve clinically. You know, what what do you do for a workup? And I would say the first thing always is to go back and say, how certain were you that the diagnosis was correct, right? So sometimes they had their serology and biopsies done elsewhere. I will call for those records just to make sure that I can review to make sure it, the diagnosis is based on sound um, diagnostic criteria. Once you've done that, then you have to say, are you getting gluten in your diet? And that's like differential number two through 15 in these patients, because most likely gluten is getting into their diet, either, you know, obviously, like they're just, you know, eating whatever they want and not paying attention to the diet, or it could be from cross-contamination, which is much more common. And it could be even in their medications. So I will have these patients review their medications with a pharmacist to see if they could be gluten-containing. So that's the most important thing to think about. And a clue to that is their serologic titer is usually still elevated if they're getting gluten in their diet with some um, increased amount. But then after you've done those, made sure the diagnosis is correct, ruled out gluten getting in their diet. Then, like I said, there's all those other things that could cause similar symptoms related to celiac disease. So small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, carbohydrate malabsorption like lactose or fructose, you know, they could have irritable bowel syndrome, common things being common, overlapped with celiac disease. They could have, you know, inflammatory bowel disease. So you have to go through that stepwise approach of looking for those other things that are seen with increased frequency in patients with celiac disease. So I think that's just an important kind of diagnostic thing to think about. And in those cases their serology will be negative, right? If if they've really eliminated gluten, that's when you go on to check them for bacterial overgrowth and all of those other things that I mentioned. So
0: this is a deep topic. Uh, this is one of those other ones, Paul, where I thought it was just like, there's one test, you just do it, put them on a gluten-free diet. Such a deep topic. I had no idea.
1: Yeah. Nope. Same. I, I'm it's always happy when I feel this ignorant. It as means. deep <laughs>
2: as, an exp- as expansive as the small intestine itself. That's right. It's <laughs> <Well, laughs> really deep. That's so deep.
0: <laughs> Beth, uh, can you take us home here? We have one case left and uh, another great name.
2: This is my favorite name of the three, I think. Avana Fettuccini is a 50-year-old female with severe GERD chronic iron deficiency anemia, obesity, migraine, headaches, and a history of IBS, maybe some functional dyspepsia. She's followed a strict gluten-free diet for five years now because she felt like it was improving her chronic GI symptoms and making her feel better. In the past, she has had a negative workup for celiac disease, including an EGD with a biopsy. Recent labs show some ongoing iron deficiency despite attempts at oral supplementation. She's still having menses, uh, no menorrhagia, she wants to know if there's a way to tell for sure whether or not she has celiac disease. How do you how do you think through this with the, this patient? Um, is this something where it's going to be a non-celiac gluten sensitivity? Or do you think about fr-
3: fructan? How would you sort this patient out? Yeah, so this is a good case, and it's a, it's a pretty common case, right? So if you have patients who are on a—what's interesting is if you look at the prevalence of celiac disease, and we kind of skipped over that at the beginning, you know, we oftentimes think about in, in white patients overall, it's 1%. If you look at the entirety of the population, it's about 0.7% um, prevalence. So not uncommon. What's interesting is about that same prevalence, about 0.67% of the population are on a gluten-free diet but don't have celiac disease. Mm-hmm. So what that means is for every one patient you see that has celiac disease, you see one patient who is on a gluten-free diet but does not have celiac disease or has not been worked up for celiac just disease. just need to
0: meet, match up those two groups and then That's we'd be right. doing great. The
3: Venn diagrams just come together. Um, so I think this is really, really common and patients now oftentimes will put themselves on a gluten-free diet and they, some of them might feel better because they either do have celiac disease and it makes them feel better or they have non-celiac gluten sensitivity. It makes them feel better you know, they may have wheat sensitivity, they may have other reasons that they just, you know, feel better avoiding um, wheat or gluten. So really, really common, you know, I would say in the past, she's had negative testing, but I don't know, and the case didn't say was she on a gluten free diet at the time, if she was already gluten free, maybe that's why the studies were negative. So you don't know. So that would be an important point before you put her through any testing to say, when was that testing done? Were you gluten free or not at that point? So once you've established that, the next conversation I have with this patient is, what is she willing to go through to make that diagnosis certain or not? Now, I have some patients who say, you're not going to get me to undergo a gluten challenge because I will feel miserable and you're just not going to get me to do it. And if that's the case, I'm I'm okay with that. I don't want to make someone miserable for a few months of their life undergoing a gluten challenge, especially if it's not going to change their behavior, meaning, They're adamant about staying gluten-free for the rest of their life because it makes them feel well. And so that's perfectly fine. I will tell them that we'll be left with that potential diagnostic uncertainty and they need to be okay with that as well. Now, if they say, I would like to know the diagnosis, I would like to know if I have celiac disease or not. And I, you know, as clinicians, I like that certainty because then if they later develop symptoms, I know how deep to do that workup knowing is a celiac disease or not. And what are some of these other associated conditions I need to think about? And so if that's what I first assess, are they interested in, in making the workup, you know, or the diagnosis certain or not? Um, and how interested are they in undergoing a gluten challenge? So I let them think about that, but what I typically will do as a first step, again, if they're if they're interested in this, is, you know, this is where there could be a very helpful role in checking their HLA. And when you look at patients who come into your office on a gluten-free diet and they want to know if they have celiac disease or not, do you challenge them or not, the first thing you can do is check their HLA. If they do not carry one of the permissive genes, hla dq 2 or DQ8, you can tell them, you do not have celiac disease you very well may have non-celiac gluten sensitivity i don't need to put you through a gluten challenge because i know you don't have celiac disease and you can choose to follow a gluten-free diet or not if it makes you feel well if that's the case i also reassure them that since they don't have celiac disease if they were, choo- were to choose to eat gluten containing foods it may make them feel unwell but it's really probably not harming their body like someone with celiac disease who ingests gluten so I tell them not to give them permission to not be so strict about their diet in that case, and they could liberalize it, assuming they feel well in that regard. Now, if you check their HLA and they, you know, carry one of the two permissive genes, then you have that, you know, situation to be in. Are they willing to undergo the challenge or not? And as we related to that earlier case, that's where I will say, okay, let's put you on a gluten challenge. Let's try to get you to eight weeks of taking in gluten, and then I will schedule the serology and an EGD with biopsy at that eight-week point. And at that point, I would usually order both just because there can be sometimes a delay and a rise with the serologic titer, and you're going to want to get both. Because again, what if that's a person who, you know, is that 5% of the population who has a negative serology? So if you're going to put them through a gluten challenge, you're going to do it with the intent to check their serology and small ball biopsies at the end of that eight-week period. And if those are normal, then again, you come back to that conversation saying you do not have celiac disease. It's great that we confirm that. And then I will just say this appears that you have non-celiac gluten sensitivity. And I'll put that in their chart just to make sure that they don't go on with this continual label like many of them do that they have celiac disease. So that's typically how I will you know, work those patients up.
0: Yeah. So let's say Ivana is Simon's partner and uh, she's going to go hang out with the bull. Bo- she could go hang out with him at the bowling alley, chips, uh, you know, beer, hot dogs, all this stuff. And uh, then we could test her eight weeks later and see if her serology pops positive and if the biopsy looks suggestive. And then that, would, that would give us the information. Okay. Correct. Correct. I, I do feel like, like you said, I mean, there's, so there's like 0. 0.6 or 0.7% of the population that are in this, this group that of people that are convinced that they just feel better when they're not eating gluten, which is, you know, I, I, it's not an essential thing to eat. Right. Right.
3: Right. And you know, when you look at foods that contain gluten, they are are often high in fructans as well, which can cause, you know, people to have extra gas and these sorts of things, you know, and I think gluten-free foods are so much more readily available now compared to in the past. And so I think the, the, sometimes the mistake is people equate a gluten-free diet to a healthy diet and you can eat a very unhealthy diet that's gluten-free. So (laughs) I think, you know, you still have to, you know, address eating a balanced diet, um, even if they're gluten-free for personal reasons or not. So I think that's an important thing as well to to emphasize that people can gain weight on a gluten-free diet if they don't eat a very balanced diet or based on food choices.
0: Well, I think we have covered so much. Uh, I think we've taken a lot of your time. So if maybe we can have a lightning round, if Paul or Beth have any other quick questions. Otherwise, I think we're at a point for take, ready for
1: take home points. No, I think my brain is full. I'm ready for take home points, I think. Beth?
2: The only question I had, and there might not be a good answer to this, but in terms of the cost regarding gluten-free products, I've noticed, you know, just incidentally that they are more expensive when I see them in the supermarket or it seems to be sort of like almost a marketing thing now where, you know, we're like, mayo, it's gluten-free. You know, I mean, how do you um, (laughs) – This (laughs) steak
0: is gluten-free.
1: Yeah, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
2: Um, But is there any like special app that patients can use or websites or subscription services, anything that can help with the cost of gluten-free diet if somebody does need to have that strict gluten-free?
3: Yeah, I think in the past that was definitely the case where gluten-free foods, like I mentioned, were harder to find. You had to go to specialty stores and the cost was definitely, you know, significantly elevated. I think the price is higher when you have to buy, like you mentioned earlier, like specialty flours or people buy specialty bread. But I think so many other foods now, again, if you look at appropriate labels are gluten-free and they're, you know, they're really no different in price than the the cereal that's, you know, next to them on the shelf. So that's where I, I have my dietitian help to make sure that they have the most up-to-date links, websites, apps in order to find those foods. You know, depending on where they live, there's often I feel pro con sometimes about the social media groups that they might join because sometimes while they can be helpful of telling them what restaurants are locally safe, sometimes that can be dangerous and that, you know, I don't know, sometimes symptoms, you know, get shared that may or may not be related. And sometimes I find patients become becoming overly restrictive um, in some of those groups. So again, I think that's where I would have a dietitian recommend what would be a good, you know, um, let's say support group to join in terms of sharing of those things. So I think the cost has been elevated in the past. I think the gluten free fad diet has actually made the gluten free market more available and more cost effective for all patients, for which patients with celiac disease have benefited in that regard. I still think though that in, you know, maybe this is a pearl that patients still need to be vigilant when something is labeled as gluten-free, because sometimes, you know, I think studies have shown that everything that's labeled in gluten-free isn't always particularly at restaurants, right? Patients will go to a restaurant, they'll see this as a gluten-free entree. They'll, sometimes I've seen people just order it without specifically saying I have celiac disease. And that's a really important thing, even if it is a gluten-free entree, I tell my patients to specify that they have celiac disease because otherwise, you know, in the back kitchen, they may just think, oh, this is a gluten-sensitive patient that doesn't want me to put the croutons or things on. But they need to know that, you know, just almost akin to, even though it's not a food allergy, it really should be treated that way in the way that the, the chef prepares it. Um, so those are important things to bring up. And I think there was a great study that was published in our one of our GI journals a few years ago that when they tested foods... At restaurants that were specifically labeled gluten free, over 50% of the pasta and pizza actually had detectable gluten above the acceptable limits despite being labeled as gluten-free. So I think it just shows you need to be vigilant. Oops. Yeah.
0: Well, let's happy
3: note. (laughs) Let's get
0: some take home points and and bring us back. Yeah, bring the mood back up, Amy. Come on. Uh, right. right. some take-home points, some positive take home points. You've just empowered the audience with really great information about right. a very common condition that we're going to see, and uh, yeah, so take right. it from here. I'd say take-home points:
3: number one, this is common, like you said, a uh, roughly one percent of the population. So you should have a low threshold to evaluate patients for it in your clinic, and just keep in mind the very broad spectrum of classic and non-classic features. Remember that the test of choice to screen is the IgA tissue transglutaminase antibody in combination with an immunoglobulin IgA level. Remember, anyone who has a positive serology should go on to have small ball biopsies, as well as anyone who has, you know, some compelling feature, even if they're serologically negative. And just remember, once you make the diagnosis, not only do they need to go on a gluten-free diet under the guidance of a, a dietitian, but all of these other things are necessary. Bone densitometry, vitamin and minerals, family screening, and importantly, appropriate follow-up, just to make sure they're improving and there aren't other things that you need to look into and consider. And it's a very treatable condition, which is positive for patients to know that they can feel you know, significantly better once they go on a gluten-free diet, so you can empower them with that knowledge.
0: All right. I'll fade this into the outro. Thank you so much.
1: This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Great. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com, and while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice each month, you'll get our new Curbsiders Digest, recapping the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine.
0: And I, I feel like, uh, you know, the, for the yummy there, we put, may, should we have put in a gluten pun or something? I, I don't Absolutely know. Absolutely not.
1: And, and that's not where we put the puns anyway. I mean, <laughs> this is like our 900th episode. What are we even doing here? By so, the way, I'm a grown man waiting for someone to say yummy. That will never, never, <laughs> never ever be okay.
0: <laughs> we're going to like, we're going to like break up. We're going to get in a fight and break up right here, Paul. The, the show's going to be over. I'm not uh, sure how uh, to over, make yummy over in, whether or not, yeah. yummy
2: into a gluten pun. Will we just be like,
0: gluten yeah that's creepy. that would have been great <laughs> uh, <laughs> let's let's retake now. it let's not do All it. Right. so audience um if you hate this if you love this please subscribe rate and review us on apple Podcasts. you can tell us there or you can send an email to the curbsiders at gmail.com a special thanks to our producer for this episode edison eddie jang and to our social media team beth garbs garbatelli on twitter maddie more maddie <laughs> Dog morgan on instagram Karganov is on the website and Chris the Chew Man Chew is on Facebook. A reminder that this and most of our episodes are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. And with all that, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew frank Wado. I've been Beth Garbs-Garbitelli.
1: And we would be remiss if we did not thank the great Stuart Brigham for composing our theme music. We should also thank the amazing Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio. As always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye.